It's Tuesday, January 3rd. From Peach Fish Productions, I'm Bob Garfield, filling in for Mike Pesca, who I believe at the moment is enjoying some strange and distant land while we're all stuck here. Until last night, it seemed the only place to begin this episode was in the House of Representatives. Would Kevin McCarthy, who has spent the past two years selling his soul in bite-sized chunks to win the Speaker's gavel, actually be elected on the first ballot or stymied by the hardcore reactionary wing of the party? And if he were to fail, then what? Well, he did fail on that first ballot and the second and the third. We'll discuss one of the improbable possibilities shortly, but for now, another uncertain outcome. Last night on Monday Night Football, about 15 million viewers witnessed something horrifying. After a violent collision with the Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver, Buffalo Bills defensive back DeMar Hamlin stood up and then collapsed on the field, unconscious and motionless in cardiac arrest. After a prolonged resuscitation, the 24-year-old was taken by ambulance off the field. Players from both teams sobbed and many prayed as a stadium full of fans and the vast television audience awaited word. Within an hour, the stadium emptied. Nobody watching knew if Hamlin was dead or alive. This evening, Hamlin remained sedated and in critical condition, but his prognosis is unclear. What is clear is that America's most popular and lucrative professional sport is a game of Russian roulette. In a bizarre and tragic bit of coincidence, the scope of that danger and the devil's bargain that perpetuates it was already planned to be the subject of today's spiel. And so, in due course, it will be. But first, once again, the first order of business in the House of Representatives on Tuesday was the vote for Speaker. For the first time in a century, the Speaker candidate, Kevin McCarthy, failed to win on the first ballot, or the second, or the third. So as of 6 p.m., as I said, the outcome remained in doubt. But did you know that you don't have to be a member of the House to be Speaker? Mike talked to former U.S. Comptroller General David M. Walker about fiscal responsibilities and getting a vote for the Speaker of the House. David Walker is up next. Welcome back to The Gist. I'm Bob Garfield filling in for Mike Pesca. We are going to play an interview that Mike had with former U.S. Comptroller General David M. Walker in which they discuss fiscal responsibility and getting a vote for Speaker of the House. The other day I was researching the history of Speakers of the House and their election. You know, they don't have to be even members of the House of Representatives. And I found out that when John Boehner was elected Speaker, getting a vote was David M. Walker. Who is David M. Walker, I asked myself. In fact, that was a question that journalists at the time were asking, wait, which David M. Walker? The astronaut got a vote? No. It turns out that Representative Walter Jones, Republican of North Carolina, and himself, a very interesting character, declared his support for David 
David M. Walker, who was at the time a fiscal reformer and who led the Comeback America initiative and was former head of the Government Accountability Office. I reached out to Mr. Walker. Was this you? He confirmed it was. And what was so fascinating is I started to get into some of Mr. Walker's work, what he did in government, what he's been doing since. I remember I saw him on the Colbert Report in 2007. He joins me now to talk about all this. Welcome to The Gist. Good to be with you, Michael. Let's talk about the Government Accountability Office. That was the name of it then. It had already changed its name when you were appointed by Clinton in 1998? No, it changed uh, under my tenure. Uh, Previously, it was the General Accounting Office, uh, and it was really a misnomer because the only accounting we did was for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were really in the accountability business. And so while I knew it was a problem from day one, I waited several years. It took legislation to change the name, and we changed it to the Government Accountability Office because we were in the government. Uh, we were account- about accountability, and it was an office. But we kept, importantly, the acronym GAO, which is the brand name. Right. So that's smart in terms of branding, and you see brands do this all the time. I think Kentucky Fried Chicken dropped the F. But are you saying you spearheaded that change? Yes, that's right. Uh, And it was part of our transformation effort. When I came in, GAO had been downsized 40% in the five years before I came in. It had a hiring freeze for five years, and it was at risk of being downsized another 25 to 40 unless I turned it around. It had lost, rightly or wrongly, the confidence of the Congress. Uh, And so we engaged in a dramatic transformation effort that was highly successful, uh, and ultimately the Congress ended up investing more in us. And even though when I left, we were 13% smaller, a third less footprint, a lot more streamlined organization, we generated uh, anywhere from three to 10 times as much return on investment as we did before. So by putting accountability in the name, you were putting your own people on notice that this will be required of you. We are now going to be accountable. Well, that's correct. I mean, we're the ones that audit, investigate, evaluate everybody else. Uh, My philosophy was we need to lead by example. We need to be as good or better than anybody else we deal with. Uh, And we took a number of steps in order to make sure that that was a reality. And, you know, thanks to the leadership and also the, the employees of the GAO. When you were appointed to that position, you first got to really see what was going on under the hood. How much of it was uh, shocking, appalling, surprising? What? Well, government tends to be very input and output focused rather than outcome focused. And, you know, GAO was better than most agencies in that regard, but it still had a long way to go. Uh, And and so, you know, I knew at the outset that the client wasn't happy. The Congress wasn't happy. We need to make dramatic changes. Change is tough in any organization, but it's especially tough in government because government is basically a monopoly. It doesn't really face any competition. And so, you know, one of the biggest challenges was to get people to understand that they were at risk uh, and that they, they need, we needed to make major changes or else there were going to be serious adverse consequences. And in doing that, you start at the top with the people who report to you because you can push their belly button. If they don't get with the program, they're gone. And then you start with the new people because they're not encumbered with the status quo and you work to the middle. Last thing on this. One of the key elements is to align performance measurement and reward systems to try to achieve the desired outcomes and to support support core values. And, and, And one of the first things I did is I found out, well, what's the results of the rating system? We had a five point scale, one being low, five being the highest. The average rating was 4.62 out of five. 
nobody was rated below four. And when I asked the top executives, how many people would you get rid of tomorrow if you could? They said 15 to 20% of the workforce. I said, well, the, then the, the performance appraisal system is worthless because you're telling me nobody's better, nobody's worse than above average. Uh, and, and the sad thing was they didn't tell the employees the truth. And we changed that dramatically. So that is trying to instill accountability within the organization. But since the organization's real job is to watch Congress uh, be a, a watchdog, a, an observer, an accounter for their spending and their spending habits, how much reform can really be achieved from within? Well, quite a bit, because one of the things that we did was that we, we put together our first strategic plan. The agency had been in existence for uh, since 1921. It never had a strategic plan. We reorganized the agency based on that. We went up to the Congress and said, look, this is our strategic plan for supporting the Congress and the American people. It focused on oversight, insight, and foresight. It helped the Congress to give us more informative requests. It enabled me to be able to do work in areas that we weren't being asked to do work on, tend to be longer range, more complex issues, if you were, more controversial issues, if you will. And so that was part of the result of you know, basically uh, significantly increasing our effectiveness, our visibility, uh, our credibility. Uh, and when I left, we generated over $100 of savings for every dollar invested in the GAO. So as Comptroller General, which is a great title, and I don't know if it gave you an extra uh, spring in your step to, <laughs> or how it played at home, knowing that I'm the Comptroller General. From what I understand, it's your job, it was your job to um, endorse the accuracy of the figures of the federal budget. And that was a problem, right? Well, it was the financial statements. Uh, you know, the, believe it or not, the U.S. government never had financial statements until the 1990s. You know, I mean, and, and we've been a republic since 1789. I mean, you know, we didn't rush into it, that's for sure. So when we finally had financial statements, part of the CFO Act said that uh, all of the agencies had to be audited and that the consolidated financial statements had to be audited. Well, we at the GAO audited the IRS, the Bureau of Public Debt, the FDIC, and the consolidated. Private sector firms, for the most part, did the others. The problem was, was that, you know, was that uh, we couldn't express an opinion on the financial statements, primarily due to problems in certain agencies like the Department of Defense, uh, Housing and Urban Development. Uh, and all of those have been effectively addressed, except for the Department of Defense, which has thousands of non-integrated legacy information systems, a number of internal control weaknesses. They're making progress, but they're several years away from being uh, able to get an opinion on their financials. Is this disorganization or is it purposeful for the people who keep this system opaque to the extent it is? Well, it's not purposeful. I think what it is, let's take the Defense Department. I mean, the Defense Department is about avoiding wars and being being able to fight and win wars if we have a conflict. It's very mission focused, all right? And it was so focused on that mission that it didn't take the business side as seriously as it should have. And frankly, the Congress didn't either. I mean, you know, there's a tendency for people to say, well, you know, if you got to support the Defense Department. You know, they need more money uh, and to kind of discount how they were operating from the standpoint of economy, efficiency and effectiveness. They've come a long way, but they've got a ways to go. And as you know, Michael, I'm on the Defense Business Board as a member of that board. And so 
I'm, you know, I'm trying to help along with others uh, get them there sooner rather than later. So while you were there at GAO, you were a unique figure. I don't know if you were the best comptroller general. I know you weren't the best name. That would be Elmer Statz, uh, a man who is in charge of the finances and accountability of America. Last name Statz. Fantastic. But you were speaking out more than I think other comptroller generals ever had. Did you get pushback on this? Did you get congratulated? Uh, What was life like when you were doing speaking tours and going on the Colbert Report as essentially America's chief accountant who has a message, uh, who is a bit of a Cassandra about the future? Well, uh, first, I was the chief auditor rather than the chief accountant. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be accounting for things the way that we're accounting for things right now if I was the accountant. So I was the auditor. Right. Secondly, look, I came to the realization that if not me, who? If not the Comptroller General of the United States, then who was going to do it? Because it was very clear the president wasn't doing it. It was very clear that members of Congress weren't doing it and, and that we had a serious problem. Uh, the other thing is, is I had some credibility because I was an active certified public accountant. Uh, I had been appointed by presidents of both major political parties. I had served in, administ- you know, during the administration of both major political parties. You know, I was an honorary blue dog Democrat and an honorary uh, Main Street Coalition Republican. OK, even though I'm a political independent now, uh, you know, I'm I'm center right, um, fiscally conservative, socially moderate. I think a significant majority of the country is in the same category. Uh, and, and so I felt that the story had to be told. Now, I didn't get real aggressive until after I left but for what I told you uh, about before. OK, uh, I did go on 60 Minutes um, in, in 2007. I did do part of the fiscal wake up tour. But as far as getting really aggressive, including national national bus tours and, uh, and, and publishing books on this is what we need to do. I didn't do that until after I left for the reason that we talked about before. And I'm still doing it, by the way. So when you left and you left your term early, you became chief executive of the Peter G. Peterson Foundation. And I read your statement at the time. You said your new position will provide you with the ability and resources to more aggressively address the range of current and emerging challenges facing our country, including advocating specific policy solutions and courses of actions. This echoes what you just told me, that you really became more aggressive and outspoken after you left government. But looking back, I mean, the government of the United States is a powerful, powerful institution. And when they get their act together and on the same page, they could do a lot more than even, you know, the billionaire or billionaire funded foundation. So so what do you think? Was it were you able to have a bigger impact outside of government than inside? I was able to do things on the outside that I could not have done on the inside. But if I if I if I knew now what I you know, if I'd known then what I know now, I probably would have stayed and completed my term. Um, because I've still been fighting since after my term would have been over. And in fact, I'm going up to Capitol Hill this afternoon and tomorrow uh, to be able to prepare for a major event tomorrow where we're calling for a constitutional amendment uh, for fiscal responsibility that will limit how much debt as a percentage of the economy this country country can take on. Uh, Because I believe that's the only way that we're going to put our finances in order. Uh, The Congress is going to have to be forced to make tough choices on mandatory spending, discretionary spending, and revenues. Uh, and historically, the statutory approaches have not worked. They haven't stood the test of time. Uh, and so people, w- we need a constitutional solution. 
So the controller general term is 15 years. You serve 10 or 11 of it. But why? Why would you, looking back, say you should have stayed? Because there's a difference between being in the inside and on the outside, uh, which you alluded to, Michael. I mean, you know, you generally can get done more on the inside than the outside. I was hoping that we could get some things done by being very specific on solutions during the five-year period of time that I would have been on the inside, right? That maybe we could have, that would have moved the needle. Unfortunately, it didn't, all right? And, and, and so now I'm in a situation where I'm still aggressively advocating. I could have finished my term, uh, you know, but fortunately, my number two succeeded me. It's never happened before. And the good news is, is that we made major changes when I was there that probably wouldn't have been made if I hadn't have been there. On the other hand, my number two, Gene Dodaro, uh, has is is maintaining those changes and trying to achieve continuous improvement. But you're right. I was much more visible than any controller general ever. There's no question about that. Uh, and for the most part, people on the Hill felt that was good because I was telling the truth and talking about things that needed to be talked about. People in the agency thought it was very good because it raised the visibility of the agency. Uh, and as I said before, you know, ultimately I came to the question if not the Comptroller General, then who? So I want to ask you about that day in 2013, early 2013, when, and from what I understand, you didn't know it was going to happen beforehand. You heard that you got to vote for Speaker of the House. Can you take me through how you learned about that and what your reaction was? Well, as you mentioned, Mike, um, the Speaker of the House doesn't have to be a member of Congress, although to my knowledge, they always have been. And... Um, uh, although I think there was at least one occasion where you had two speakers of the House, okay, and I don't know the whole story behind that, but they were members of Congress. Uh, and, you know, things were fit pretty dysfunctional. Uh, and Walter Jones uh, ended up voting for me because he thought I was a problem solver and I was acceptable on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and I was a truth teller and, you know, constructive about what I was trying to do. Uh, in addition to that, Jim Cooper uh, voted for uh, Colin Powell. And so I think the two of us were the ones that ended up getting a vote that weren't members of Congress. Um, needless to say, we didn't get enough votes to win, but, <laughs> you know, but, but it, was, it was a news event because a lot of people didn't even know that you didn't have to be a member of Congress in order to be Speaker of the House. Right. And so when you heard that you got voted for, did you know Jones was going to do this beforehand? Did you have any inkling? I, I had no idea that Walter was going to do it beforehand. May God rest his soul. Uh, I did call him up and thanked him for the vote. That's good. <laughs> uh, I, I had given talks. Uh, you, know, you know, I gave a lot of talks. I still give a fair number of talks, uh, including in his district. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, he, he was dedicated to fiscal responsibility and to stewardship, as I am. Uh, and uh, I think that's why he did it. He, he did it to send a signal. And I, just as I think Jim Cooper did, he, he did it to send a signal. We, we need more unity and we need more results rather than rhetoric. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I'm a member of No Labels, which is not left, not right, forward, uh, progress, not partisanship, results, not rhetoric. For a second, did you even consider, what would I do as Speaker of the House? How would, would I take the job? If elected, would I serve? Well, obviously that was not going to happen. But but the answer is, is if it had happened, um, I would have uh, endeavored to get the body to focus on the issues 
that were of concern to the American people. I would endeavor to try to reach on both sides of the aisle uh, to make the case for what needed to be done in order to help create a better future for America and to try to uh, reinstill uh, the regular order uh, and things going through committees before they would go to the floor and not try to have all the backroom deals done by leadership, if you will. So basically focus on the people, revitalize the institution, actively work together to solve problems that are known and growing. Uh, and uh, therefore, it's prudent to do, deal with it sooner rather than later. I, I think whoever the speaker is, that's what they need to do. I fear that's not what's going to happen. David Walker is a former U.S. Comptroller General. He is currently a member of the Defense Business Board. His latest book, recently updated, is America in 2040, Still a Superpower. He got a vote for Speaker of the House. Thanks so much, Mr. Walker. Mike, my pleasure. All the best. And now, the spiel. The stadium was silent as the Buffalo Bills' DeMar Hamlin, motionless on a stretcher, was being loaded into an ambulance last evening. Not what any of us want to see, and everybody's around him, and just hope that he's going to be okay. I was one of millions watching and wondering what was next. Will the young man live? The obvious central question. But also... Will the NFL and ESPN, with tens of millions of dollars at stake, resume the nominally crucial game? And if not, how will that affect the playoffs scheduled to begin next week? Yeah, I know, gross, but such is the mentality of a football fan, such as, for example, me. Now, if you were an FBI profiler trying to get a fix on uh, my behaviors, you'd see my bookcases and my writing oeuvre and uh, my Netflix history, and probably you'd divine an irritable, pointy-headed, unbelievably attractive leftist art lover. But you'd never, ever peg me as a heavy consumer of professional sports because everything else-wise, it doesn't fit. Yet, I've followed the Eagles for the past 60 years. That's 60, as in 60 fucking years, which is the lifespan of a long, thin eel, the planet's oldest parrot, or Axl Rose, so far. Why this lifelong fixation? Is it the athleticism, the tribalism, the thrilling uncertainty of each contest? I suppose, yes, to all of that. It must be something irresistible because the game also presents a nagging conflict. To be a football fan is to be a witting accomplice to one of American society's most repulsive ongoing crimes. Not 60, but 102 years of NFL carnage. Oh, now Cooper Cup is down. Gets rolled up under by Marco Wilson. Oh, immediately grabs for that kind of ankle shin area yeah rough blow for seattle and their standout safety jamal adams sources say he is expected to have season ending surgery to repair his torn quad tendon that means his 2022 is expected to be over look at mac jones going to the sideline absolutely hobbling 
not putting any pressure on his left leg. The athletic trainer's coming out to him. Oh, boy. See his head just get driven backwards. Wow. And Trey Lance is being carted off in his uh, home opener in 2022. Martin both made the hit. Mm. An unfortunate spot for Lance to be in there. Tunga Bailoa, oh, boy. Getting up. Oh, my goodness. That's an awful, awful sight to see. They will take him to the sideline immediately. Mike Ryan tells us when he sees that, and he's watching this as you are as well, it's a neurological response to head trauma. Of the 1,730 players who began this NFL season, so far more than 300 of them were lost to season-ending injuries. That doesn't count the hundreds who missed a game or more while recovering from traumas to the cervical spine, lumbar spine, cervical disc, lumbar disc, AC joint, rotator cuff, anterior cruciate ligament, medial collateral ligament, meniscus, patellar tendon, hamstring, pectoral muscles, biceps muscles, Achilles tendon, fibula, tibia, patella, hand, wrist, femur, humerus, toe, elbow, pelvis, ribs, sternum, orbital bone, collarbone, hip, spleen, kidney, and eye. That Taxonomy of trauma comes courtesy of a research paper titled A Systematic Review of the Orthopedic Literature Involving National Football League Players, a meta-analysis of 147 individual studies. I left one body part out, by the way, the brain, as in concussion, as in chronic traumatic encephalopathy, as in dementia and suicidal depression. Of the component studies in that meta-research, the most eye-opening documented the NFL Combine. More than 70% of the players arrived there with a history of foot and ankle injuries. More than 50% with shoulder injuries. 50% with ACL, MCL, or meniscus tears of the knee. It's eye-opening because the Combine is for collegiate players hopeful of being selected in the NFL draft. In other words, They were damaged as children and adolescents before playing a single professional down. If they achieve their dream, more carnage. A 2013 Washington Post poll of 500 former NFL players revealed that 9 in 10 reported concussions while playing, and nearly 6 in 10 reported three concussions or more. Two in three said they experienced continuing symptoms. More than 9 in 10 players reported suffering at least one major injury while in the NFL. More than half reported three or more major injuries. One in five reported five or more. 44% of former players said they have either had a joint replacement or have been advised they'll need one. And 9 of 10 former players reported playing hurt throughout their pro careers. They were, in other words, gladiators sacrificed to the appetites of the crowd and the league's $16 billion in annual revenues. It is an irreconcilable conflict, tracing ultimately to the grooming of children who will face lifelong disability or worse. Now, you might think there would be a force of reason, a third-party institution with not only the critical distance, but the explicit responsibility to watchdog the culture and conduct of the league. But nope, the sports media are eager and active accessories to the corruption. Those who make a living documenting the violence can scarcely bring themselves to say the word injured aloud. Instead, players are 
dinged up or nicked up, nor do alarms particularly sound when the injuries come in bunches, as they have for my Eagles in the past three weeks. Quarterback Jalen Hurts was clobbered on a run and damaged his shoulder. Right tackle Lane Johnson tore an abdominal muscle almost clean through. Safety Chauncey Gardner-Johnson is on injured reserve with a lacerated kidney. What did the TV announcers say? They say they've been bit by the injury bug, like a mosquito, I guess. A, a mosquito bite like the one that on Sunday saw our own player, defensive end Josh Sweat, immobilized on a gurney with a neck injury and carted to the hospital. Damn skeeters. Get out the calamine lotion. The announcer's dismissive euphemisms infuriated me. So, you know what I did? I watched the game to the end. Such is hypocrisy. I'm like a Bible-thumping family values Republican getting caught red penist. Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Tim Murphy says he will not seek re-election after reports he asked his mistress to have an abortion. The lawmaker who has opposed abortion said in a statement he is taking time, quote, to seek help as my family and I continue to work through our personal difficulties. Yep, like ex-Congressman Murphy, hooked on the very thing I loathe. But it's not really an addiction, is it? Just moral palsy. It's the surrender of my righteous indignation and self-respect for spectacle and thrill and making that same indefensible choice every year, every week for 21 weeks. In fact, as Damar Hamlin fights for his life, my Eagles seem to be headed for the Super Bowl. So this season, I could well be forsaking my humanity right through February 12th, unless Monday night's gruesome injury was the last straw for my conscience. What will happen Sunday when the Eagles play for the top seed in the playoffs? Well, I think the key will be the defensive line and safeties. They have to stuff the Giants' running game and hurry the opposing quarterback. But so many key players are dinged up. They're saying Jalen Hurts can tough it out and play through the pain with his sprained shoulder. Maybe he can. God willing. That's it for today's show. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. I'm Bob Garfield, and thanks for listening.